This is the Small Mouth Crush Podcast. If you're a hardcore angler, you've come to the right place. This is a weekly podcast that will interview some of the top smallmouth bass anglers in North America. Travis and his guest will discuss what it takes to consistently catch big smallmouth, and you'll get a glimpse inside the mind of a trophy smallmouth angler. And now, here's your host of the Smallmouth Crush Podcast, Travis Manson. Hello, welcome to the Smallmouth Crush Podcast. My name is Travis Manson. Today's guest, we're talking big smallmouth like we do every week. I hope you guys are digging this podcast. We got a lot of amazing anglers. But this this angler today, Joe Baylog, if you've been living under a rock, he's one of the top smallmouth bass anglers in the country, dominates the Great Lakes, the big water, has won hundreds of thousands of dollars back in the day, and he's never fished on the professional circuit, never fished the FLW Tour or the Elites. This was all opens and regional events. And a lot of the products that you and I use today was based off of his recommendations, whether it be side image, whether it be the baits that we catch smallmouth with, whole bunch of stuff. It was a fascinating, fascinating interview. And I can't wait to share that with you. But before we do, I do want to talk about the real shot. They carry the most wanted tackle that a smallmouth crush fan could want. Top brands like Mega Bass Jackal, Evergreen Z-Man, Daiwa Shimano, Dirty Jigs, Omega Custom Tackle, Kai Tech Guggen, all kinds of stuff. St. Croix Rods and so much more. The Real Shot's easy-to-shop website will make selecting product super easy with, with fast same-day shipping. They will help get product in your tackle box before your next tournament or your big bass adventure. So anytime you need to find the latest in bass gear on your favorite and trusted baits, make sure to check out therealshot.com. Use my promo code smallmouthcrush15 at the time of checkout, and they're going to give you 15% off your order. All right, the man, the myth, the legend. Let's bring Joe Baylog on. How are you? Well, I can't complain. We're talking smallmouth. We're talking big smallmouth, trophy smallmouth. I know you have a lot of experience when it comes to smallmouth fishing, although you're down in Florida right now. How many smallmouth are living in Florida right now? Uh, none. None. And I don't even have one on my wall, so none. There's photos, but no live smallmouth. Okay, okay. So to talk to me about that. I mean, there's so much we want to get into. What are you doing in Florida right now? Well, you know, I have always... Um, you know, had a, had a thing for Florida and Florida bass fishing. And that was something that I started doing at a very young age with my dad. That was our vacation. Little history on me. You know, I grew up in Ohio uh, and, and started my career on Lake Erie. My dad was a charter boat captain on Lake Erie off and on. And, and my family was all involved in the Lake Erie fishing. So that was my natural go-to. But my, you know, my passion was still Florida largemouth fishing. Uh, and I kind of divided those. Um, that was more of a vacation type of fishing. And now, uh, you know, I kind of vowed to myself years ago that if it ever worked out where I could move to Florida and fish year round for largemouth and saltwater fish, I would. And I did. Um, I left Ohio in like 2004 and I moved up to St. Clair and I was there for a decade, a little over a decade. So, so I kind of did about 15 years on Erie and about 10 years on St. Clair. Uh, so after 25 years in a bass boat on the Great Lakes, I'm, I'm fishing small waters and sunshine. 
Sure. When you made that move to St. Clair, was that a fishing related move? Did you purposely choose that to be, you know, you, you probably have a lot of experience at that time on Lake Erie. And then you decided, right. Hey, let's get a little closer up on the St. St. Clair area. Or what was the reason for that? No, you know, it actually worked out good from a career standpoint. I was, uh, you know, one of those few guys in the nineties and early two thousands that made a living from bass fishing without fishing, you know, the elite series or the FLW tour. I dipped my toe a little bit in each one of those and, and uh, had the opportunity to fish some bigger stuff. But but I fished kind of local stuff, and I was kind of the jackpot guy. You know, when a big tournament came to town on the Great Lakes, anywhere on the north uh, end of the country, I was always there. So um, it worked out because St. Clair became the kind of in vogue place for big bass tournaments in that period. You know, here we're talking 2010, 2012. You know, that, that was when it was really hitting. Uh, so it worked out, but no, I moved for a girl like a lot of guys do. You know, I met my wife. She was from Michigan. I went to school in Michigan. Uh, and then, uh, we just decided Michigan was a good place for us to live with her schooling and things. So, so it worked out real good for me because, you know, St. Clair was an awesome fishery. I became involved in the duck hunting industry as well and the ice fishing industry. So, so it was perfect. St. Clair is really a sportsman's paradise up there. It's just fantastic year round and the smallmouth fishing is probably second to none. So it worked out great. So your background when it comes to some of the uh, the industry and the technology and the, the items that people use, the big, you know, big water offshore uh, anglers that, that fish for smallmouth. I know you have a lot of contributions when it comes to that. Can you talk about that a little bit with us? That was one of the things I think. And, and, I, and that's what's cool. I'm so glad you invited me on here to talk about stuff like that, because today's bass anglers and today's audience you know they watch the stuff like the elite series tournament on the st lawrence River or a big flw tournament on st Clair or whatever and they they see some of these things that the the big water technology that's out there uh but when myself and a handful of others started fishing like lake erie in the late 80s there was no such thing as big water bass fishing big water bass fishing was you know, what are you, nuts? You're going out there in a bass boat? I mean, that's what we got every single day when we went to the gas station from from the looks of other people. What are you, crazy? You're going on Lake Erie in that little boat? So we were kind of the pioneers of a lot of things, uh, you know, just kind of baptism by fire type deal. A lot of the in, innovations and and, uh, and things that have, have evolved in fishing, depth finder mounts, you know, the ram mount technology, um, a lot of innovations to ranger boats were directly results from myself and a few others that were prominent pro staff members uh, on the Great Lakes. You know, the way that the batteries fit in the back of a ranger boat, that was one of the things that I preached about forever. You know, this idea that people were putting batteries all over the boat because it couldn't fit, you know, three or four big batteries in the back of the boat. That's ridiculous. So we we went to ranger with that. They redesigned the rear compartments. Um, Johnson Outdoors was a partner of mine for 20 years. I helped them uh, test everything when it came to, uh, you know, performance and the ability to, to hold up to things. For instance, there was a time for a year long period, they had 25 sensors on my boat, all through my boat, testing just the G forces on my boat so that they could redesign their trolling motor mounts and their battery chargers. And, and, and the, the results were shocking. (laughs) You know, the amount of force coming down on a trolling motor mount is unbelievable. So, bounce busters, you know, the, the locking mechanisms to hold trolling motors down. That was all stuff we created. Um, just the way you put a trolling motor on a boat. When I started bass fishing, the way they put a trolling motor on the bow of a boat was with screws, not even with bolts. They okay. screwed them to the boat, you know, so we were the guys that were putting 
six and eight big bolts through our trolling motors. And we were the guys screwing our boats together every night. Uh, you know, there was a few guys. I started fishing in a bass club when I was in high school or junior high uh, that started. And I think it was one of the first Lake Erie bass clubs ever. It was called Central Basin Bass. And there was a bunch of guys around uh, the Ohio area. Uh, my good buddy Danny Devera was one of the, the founding members of that. Uh, and, and there was there was guys that only fished Lake Erie. And, and that's, you know, there wasn't a lot of us, but that was it. And then as I expanded more with my career and fished bigger tournaments, I started meeting and fishing with guys like Steve Clapper, who, of course, is a is a is probably the most legendary big water bass fisherman of, of all time. Uh, you know, so, so there was a lot of guys uh, that that my ideas, their ideas, we kind of bounce back and forth and we we really combine to create a lot of things that today when you watch these tournaments and you see these things with these guys running through monster waves and you think, how are their boats holding up? Well, ours were the guinea pig boats. You know, we were the ones with broken windshields and we were the ones with rub rails flying out. I remember Mark Zona one time lost his whole rub rail in one day. It was unbelievable. Sure. So, so that was, it was, it was heartbreaking, but it was really kind of fun to, to go through all that. So how many, uh, have you, have you been in some shady situations a time or two, I would imagine off, yeah. offshore? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I learned early on and on a serious note, you know, I had, a um, my mom's side of the family had had three brothers and they were all fishermen. Uh, and one of my uncle's best, dearest friends drowned on Lake Erie. Uh, and, and I learned early on to value the dangers and the safety ideas and the safety precautions, especially being in smaller boats on the Great Lakes, mainly because what people really don't take into account is water temperature. You know, we frequently fish during times of year when the fishing's the best, when the water's cold. And if you go in Lake Erie in a bass boat in November, you're done. So, so you, need to, you need to take precautions both in the safety of your boat. Um, it's a lot easier now. You know, even that's another thing. So, you know, inflatable life jackets. If, if you fish the Great Lakes or you fish up north in the wintertime for bass and you don't wear one of those, you're, you're pretty foolish. You know, you, we used to use survival even, suits. Even up on, like, when you're fishing, have it on. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I fish offshore on the ocean here, and I wear one in the summertime in Florida. So, I mean, and there's no discomfort to a, you know, a Mustang-type inflatable. There's, there's nothing to it. Um, but, but back again, when we fished in the wintertime, myself and Steve Clapper and a few others, we wore Coast Guard-issued survival suits, float suits, because mm. there was no inflatables then. You know, so, I mean, that, that kind of stuff, you just can't mess around. I personally was involved in two or three, I think three different times I brought anglers on my boat from other bass boats that sunk on Lake Erie, wow. you know, or towed them to safety. So, um, you know, those are things you got to really pay attention to on, on the Great Lakes. So, so again, we kind of learned the hard way, got lucky on a few. I, you know, there was a tournament one time that, that I definitely got lucky on one and got away with one when it came to you know, what the master plan was for my life. Uh, but uh, I learned a lot from it, and I don't take any chances, you know, anymore. It's, it's just foolish. You don't mess around with cold water. Let's say you're preparing for a tournament back in the day, and you had fish 20, 30 miles away from the launch ramp, and it was blowing bad. And you felt like you had your equipment and everything tied down, and, you, you know, you have that experience. Is that why, I mean, do you go after those fish? Do you take your time and get to that spot? Or do you, did you have like a backup plan? Because I know you have a really good track record when it comes to uh, tournament fishing. 
in that region. And of course, big waves come into play all the time. Right. Are you going to those fish? Are you? Well, you know, and again, it's, it's a little different now than it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was no such thing as, as a cancellation day. There was no blow day. There was no, oh, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, small craft advisory. We're going to cancel or we're going to lock you into an air. It was, hey, man, bell sounds, you go. Okay. So if you wanted to win, you went to where the big fish were and you learned how to um, make that possible. You know, for example, there were several tournaments on Lake Erie and on the Detroit River where I didn't begin fishing my first place until after, say, 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now we're launching at 7. Mm-hmm. So there were several times that I ran two and a half to three hours, one direction to fish for two hours to run three hours back. Not because it was so far, but because it was so rough. Right. You can't go fast when it's rough. You can if, you know, that's another misconception, right? I hope we're not, <laughs> you're going to sidetrack me like crazy. No, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, you see big tournaments today and you see like an elite series event and you see professional celebrity anglers, you know, running very fast in big waves. You can get away with that once a year. You know, you can get away with that on the final day of a tournament. But if you fish, say, a big tournament on Saturday, and the next weekend you got a tournament on Saturday and Sunday, and you're trying to fish a Wednesday night or in between, and you're trying to work and you're trying to do other things, after about a month of that, your boat, you might as well throw your boat away. Yeah, so make a very good point. That's, uh, yeah, you can do anything once. I mean, I ran a couple times where I destroyed my boat on the final day of a tournament. But if you want to compete every week, you learn that you have to go slow and you just have to take the waves for what they give you and you have to be patient. And if the fish are biting, you know, on the Great Lakes and it's rough and a lot of times they bite when it's rough, it doesn't take a lot of time to catch them. So, in you know, answer your question, in those scenarios, yes, you would go. Um, we would, specifically myself and other guys that did real well in tournaments, we would always have wind areas for when it got bad. You know, for instance, a lot of people that have fished Lake Erie know Peely Island. Um, I would specifically practice around Peely Island, a little bit on the west side, a little bit on the east side, a little bit on the south side, because when it got real bad, you could still get on one side of the island or the other and get a little bit of protection and be able to fish. So that was always the thing. In today's day and age, I think with the way big tournaments are, you just you don't even have to do that because if it's bad, they don't let you go, you know, for the most part. So so it's a little different world in that sense. Um but yes, I, you just you just had to go really, really slow. And sometimes, you know, that got the best of me. There was tournaments. I remember a tournament I lost to Larry Nixon on Lake St. Clair, and I had to go all the way to Lake Erie, and I tried to win that last day, and I just couldn't get there and back and have any time to fish. And the guys that fished on St. Clair and on the river, they had a full day. So sometimes it bit you. Other times, I remember a tournament I was one of the only guys to run, and I won. So it can go both ways, but you just got to go slow. That's the deal. And it's right. it's so monotonous to sit there and look at your GPS and go, okay, I'm going 12. Mm-hmm. I'm going 15. I'm going 14. And you think, I have 27 miles to go. And you're just going 14 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But in two hours, you'll be there. And you got to be ready when you get there. And if you get there, the old adage was a buddy told me, if I get to the fish with no trolling motor and no depth finders, it's done me no good. So you got to get there in one piece. That that brings up my next question as far as technology. Um, you know, back in the day, your standard two day two D sonar, right. and then of course side image came along. Uh, right. How has that 
changed, uh, you know, fishing, I guess, from your perspective? Well, you know, again, when I first started fishing tournaments on Lake Erie, 2D sonar was the only thing there was. There was GPSs that were just plotter screens. That's all there was. And they were just coming out. Um, we still used flashers for any high speed travel to, to record, you know, the bottom. And we would run around on calm days on Lake Erie with flasher. I mean, we took, we took paper charts and did the old, I mean, like you see in pirate movies with, you know, to, to actually plot the approximate longitude and latitude of reefs. And we ran out with a flasher on a calm day to find those reefs. Now you get, you know, a Lake master chip or whatever, and you go right to it. Um, so it has changed tremendously the sport as far as navigation, as far as the ability to get on the sweet spot. I mean, any veteran of the Great Lakes will have the same story that they remember when the chips came out, that whether it was Lake Master Navionics, when those came out, you suddenly started seeing like people from Alabama on your sweet spot on Lake Erie, you know, during a tournament. And you're like, how is this even possible? It took me 15 years to find that rock pile. Wow. All the chips showed you right where to go. That was a huge breakthrough. Side imaging, in my opinion, um, was probably the most revolutionary breakthrough ever in deep structure fishing on the Great Lakes. I believe I was the first guy to have side imaging on Lake Erie. So that was, I remember the first time I turned it on. I mean, I, I remember in my mind, I can see in my mind's eye what the screen looked like. And it was like, oh my God, it's like they drained the lake. I could see everything. Underwater cameras were a big player and still are and are huge, especially for scouting, especially for determining what kind of fish you're marking. That's awesome. Um, so technology was huge. You know, GPS spot lock trolling motors, again, unbelievable difference. That was something I helped design too um, and, and test. Um, and now forward-looking sonar, not something I'm using, but I know if I fish the Great Lakes in tournaments, in bass tournaments, if they're going to allow that technology, you need to have it. There's no question. In some places, it won't work to your advantage, but in a lot of places, it will be absolutely imperative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, technology has really, really come a long way. I think what it really changes or what you really see about it uh, is that it's, it's actually making the fish more difficult to catch. I saw that in my career. The fish went from, you know, in the old days, you went to a reef. And let's say the reef came up out of 25 feet of water to 18 feet of water. Mm -hmm. And there was one rock that came up to 16 feet of water. The fish were always on that rock. I mean, there was no, you didn't look around. You went to the sweet, that's what came to term the juice. I mean, that's where it came from. You would go right to that rock and drop your bait on it. And you'd catch the fish. Uh, and then as we started seeing more people get better at fishing, better at finesse methods, better at boat control, the fish started to expand more and start to occupy more places that weren't necessarily so great looking on the graph. And then as we started to see even further, the Great Lakes regulars, the guys on Erie that won a lot of money, we started to find that the way you fished was different. You no longer pulled your bait with the current. You started moving your bait against the current. You started drop shotting where you would push your boat back up into the waves. You started looking for fish in between two pieces of really good structure, just down in a little saddle or something obscure, because I think the fishermen were, were moving them around. Sure. You know, so with forward-looking sonar, my prediction is going to be, you know, it's going to be really, really hard to catch fish in years to come. But 
it'll be doable. People always figure out the next bait, the next way, the next super realistic thing, the best line, the, you're just going to have to really work at it. Right. You know, well, so, so technology always changes the game, especially on the Great Lakes. Cause it's, it's all you need. You know, it's not like here in Florida, you can, you can go fishing and catch a big bag without even using a graph. Right. right. But, but up there it's, it's the number one tool. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned something about baits and I, I do have a couple questions about that. As far as in the beginning on the Great Lakes and then the uh, introduction of gobies, what have you seen as far as uh, soft plastics and how has that progressed to today? In the early days of smallmouth fishing on the Great Lakes, typically the baits that most people use, even before, again, I feel so old. I'm talking about before there even were tube jigs. We used lead head grubs. You know, you used a big grub, which was kind of a uh, a uh, you know borrowed piece out of the out of the playbook of Tennessee and Kentucky and stuff, where a lot of guys just kind of fished with with uh, four and five inch grubs on a lead head. So so we used those on Lake Erie a lot. We used a lot of metal baits early on, spoons and blade baits and things. And that's what's funny about lure selection is that blade baits and spoons and those. I mean, all those baits still work. And blade baits, you see like a you'll see like a resurgence of that stuff. Like every five years, there's a bunch of articles on blade bait fishing. But people that I know that fished before me in the 70s on Lake Erie fished with blade baits. So, so I mean, that's always something that's been one of the key players because it's a real efficient bait for deep water and cold water. Um, but when it comes to plastics, you know, we went from grubs to tubes. We went from tubes to drop shots. And when we first started using drop shots, the basic reason we were using drop shots was – the old method of fishing on the Great Lakes was to throw a tube jig out and drift along. And then it became more known at, while well, myself and a few other individuals were using big trolling motors and we were holding on structure because you see, I kind of came from the, from the mentality that I wasn't like a, a Lake Erie fisherman that while I fished and did all these things and then started bass fishing, I was a bass fisherman. So when I went to Lake Erie and I started fishing with some people that fished there, and we would drift over a big reef. And when we'd get to that one rock, like I mentioned, we'd catch two fish, and then we'd keep drifting. Keep drifting. And I would be like, the fish are up on the rock. Like, why are we drifting? So we, we came up with ways to hold the boat on specific targets. We came up with a number of different pieces of equipment to make that easier. And then naturally, drop shot fishing kind of really fit into that mold. Because here's fish that are getting more pressure. Here's fish that finesse fishing is catching more of those fish. Uh, we saw warmer water temperatures throughout the years. The fish were a little bit more sluggish. Uh, the tube jig deal, although it was still working, we started seeing bigger numbers of, of freshwater drum, which people call sheephead up there. That was like a, a problem with tube jig fishing. So drop shot really fit for bass fishing. Um, but then again, when I was doing it, when we first started doing it, we just borrowed the page from somewhere else. Drop shot fishing was, you know, a robo worm. That's what that's what the guys on the West Coast used. That's where drop shotting came from. You know, it was a it was a it was a technique from Japan that came to California. It got popularized in California. Guys are using robo worms. That was the way to go. We're using robo worms. I'm out on Lake Erie. I'm fishing with a robo worm, and the fish are spitting up gobies. Mm. And that's when I kind of had a light bulb go off. I'm like, why are we using worms? So that's when I designed the original, the first ever goby lure, which was Poor Boy's Drop Shot Goby. Mm. And then, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a worm tail, but it's got a round head. It's got a smaller profile. 
you know, we made it flat so it fluttered. It really kind of rocked down it fluttered, and it, it looked just like a goby. The fish were now feeding on gobies. We had a big, big population boom of gobies in Lake Erie, and that bait in the first year it was on the market, it won like every single big bass tournament on Lake Erie for over a year. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, people that never even did good in bass tournaments were using that bait and winning tournaments. It was crazy how those fish ate that bait. Sure. So that's all you needed. You know, and then from that, we saw other things evolve. We saw uh, the scent factor became a really big thing with the introduction of Berkeley's gulp products. That was like a smallmouth thing. People were like, look at this gulp stuff, how they like this gulp stuff. We saw better quality plastics like, you know, little darter baits and little worms and little Japanese hand pours and things that just had better action. We saw the inception of... Um, you know, the super plastics, the Elastec style baits, this is what we at the time called stretchy baits. That was a huge player with the Lake Erie guys. And, and that wasn't something that we really talked about for a long time. That was because they floated up off the bottom, you know, so, so that was, that was all stuff that uh, was really big. And now, you know, you're going to continue to see that you're going to see, especially with smallmouth. Um, and, and I, I, people that are watching this or that are really junkies of this whole thing, I, I mean, I, I can't overstate how important sometimes scent is for those fish, you know, and we're seeing that now with another Berkeley bait uh, that, that I'm reading all about, you know, I'm not, I haven't fished it, but uh, you know, I know that the, that's a, a huge player now and, and you're going to see different companies try and figure that out because it's never been perfected, but I'm here to tell you there is a gigantic difference at times with scented baits because I have taken and researched baits where I've had an exact lure with no scent and the same lure with an added scent. And I'm telling you, it's like the difference between a live shiner and a, you know, dead shiner. It's unbelievable. The difference, how the small muscle key on scent. So soft plastics continue to evolve. They continue to look better, you know, better actions. And then the scent I think is just as important for smallmouth. So who knows what's next? Wow. That's interesting. As far as the scent, I, I do want to, circle back around that real quick cool so when you're experimenting with the baits uh you know what what type of setting or, or how did you experiment i mean i can tell you just straight up how a lot of that came to be the, the first one is when golf came out that's when the light bulb kind of went off with me you know everybody had played with scent scent was big in the bass fishing industry before that okay. you know again think back to the 80s um and for people that can remember that far back you know, that's when fish formula and Dr. Juice and all yeah, this stuff in the yeah. pros and, and uh, big claws that had the riverside scent that Denny Brower slipping in the bushes. And you got to have the scent. So everybody's like, oh, this scent stuff is really cool. Um, and of course, I was somebody that played around with on the largemouth side, playing around with scent. But then with smallmouth, we're using these different plastic baits. And then when gulp came out, um, the original first gulp, if anybody was around to remember that, was the worst looking, no action, kinked up baits, ugly stuff that you'll ever see. It looked like mashed up night crawlers in a bag. It was sure. terrible. And you would take your worm out of the bag and it would be like crooked and it wouldn't even look good on your hook. And it was just like, it was like, you know, fishing for trout at the county fair. It was just like mm-hmm. nuggets of just nothing. And you'd put it down there and it would go thunk, and you'd catch a big smallmouth. Sure. And you'd put it down there again and it would be again. It was just like, there's something about this bait because it's not the way it looks. It's not the action it has. It's not the color. So it was the scent. 
So we started to see with gulp that it was amazing. And the first year or two that gulp came uh, and, and was fished regularly on Lake Erie, it was fantastic. When I started fishing more with um, other plastic baits, and it was both both the Elastec material baits as well as straight plastic baits, I started personally using a lot of scent. And one of the reasons was is because some of the original runs of those baits when they made them at the time, again, this was like a later generation of the scent wars. So you've got Strike King says, we're going to put coffee in our baits. Somebody else says something. So everybody's got these baits, and some of them were extremely heavily garlic scented. And those baits seemed to outperform other baits. And you would have three or four packages of baits in your in your pocket or laying on the front deck. Mm-hmm. And you'd take a bait out, and you'd catch a fish, and you know the bait would fly off the hook. And you'd put another one on and you wouldn't catch it. And you'd go, I'm going to go back to that one, that bag I was using with the garlic. And you'd put it on and you'd drop it down and you'd catch a fish. And this would happen over and over and over. So it got to the point where myself and a few other people that were fishing Lake Erie tournaments all the time, we had handfuls of baits that literally we wouldn't let people see or smell or anything. Like where you do this deal when you hook them on so the co-anglers don't see them. Right. And, and you, when other boats are around you, if they're hanging off your rod tip, you put them in the water so that they can't see them or you lay them on the front deck. You come in at the end of the day at weigh-in and you take all your baits off and leave your rods on the front deck because you, you want the press to see your rods right. and, and your sponsors, but you don't want them to see your lure. Sure. So some of those garlic baits would catch fish. I then got a number of other baits that were the exact size, shape, manufacture, and color and the following year, there was no garlic added to those baits. They didn't smell like anything. We would take the garlic ones and the regular ones and literally mark them in two different bags, and the garlic ones would outperform the regular ones. Wow. I then started experimenting with different things to put in the bags of regular ones and found that pure garlic oil was something. There was some salmon and steelhead baits that had curing mixtures and things that gave them a lot of different scents. We played with garlic, a few other different scents, um, but it became obvious that when you had an extremely strong scented bait, you could pull up on a rock pile. Okay, this was my research and development. This was not. I, I don't know if this is the scientific method. I don't know if this would hold up in court. Right. But when I pull up on a rock pile and I look down and there's three big arches next to the rock and I drop one bait on it and they don't bite and I reel it up real quick take it off, put the next one on, drop it down, lift up, and there's already a fish on it. Hmm. And that happens 12 times in one day, something's going on. So so that's exactly what it was. It was just continuously plowed into fish until you figured out that one was preferred than others. Now, I don't know if that's still the case today. And I did see swings in the fish's behavior. I don't, I can't tell you why. You can call me crazy. But gulp was, you know, I said gulp so many times. That was a perfect example. The year that gulp came out, which was probably like, I don't know, 03, 04, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like there was like three years. It was unbelievable. And after that, it, was, it wasn't any better than just using a Zoom worm. There was no, it was not any good anymore. So, and, and, and here we're seeing it again with this, uh, what is it, a flat max? Maxent, uh, yep. Maxent, yeah, flat worm. Um, yeah, it, that's, you know, the, the pros are on that. 
They're not on that because they all get free stuff from Berkeley. They're on that because they know they need to use it. So, so you have another example right now. It's it's fascinating stuff to me. Smallmouth are fascinating, especially in that regard. Sure. No, I'm I'm really I'm always curious about scent. My theory is if I'm in a tournament, I certainly marinate it or put it on uh, during that sure. event to give me a little extra confidence. But maybe it's something we need to start using even more on a regular basis if we want to have fun and catch some fish too. It's not. Yeah, just- I mean, I I've been a big believer in scent for all different kinds of. I talk to writers and people all the time that have fished their whole life that are big believers in scent. You know, is it is it a cure all? Not necessarily, but I do think it's a factor. I think we underrate wildlife as it is. You know, you can you can go through so many different aspects if you're an outdoorsman, which you know I've been in the outdoors in all different facets my whole life. And you know, when you do stuff like you see a duck, you know that that tracks somehow some kind of invisible magnetic line from North America and Canada down to Mexico, and he lands on the same spot on the same lake year after year after year with no GPS. Sure. We underrate wildlife. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's fascinating. Even I'm even sure bass can smell. Sure. Sure. Do you Do think, you think that, fish that fish is, is smelling, smelling that, that bait and then, you know, that extra sense allowing them to maybe hold on to it longer. Is I think well. personally, especially like on Lake Erie, Lake Erie is kind of an anomaly in its sense that, you know, frequently the water is not that clear. Lake Erie has a lot of algae blooms and a lot of, of uh, content to the water that, that a lot of times, you know, water clarity is only say two feet. It also gets much, much warmer than the other Great Lakes, which lends itself to some algae blooms. So, so you frequently have water temperature in the upper 70s that's kind of milky and kind of dirty, and it seems scent comes into play. Um, I think a lot of times the bass on Lake Erie really can't see. You know, I, I think a lot of times if you go down 25 feet in the middle of summer on Lake Erie, I don't think there's hardly any light penetration. And, and you know, I think those big smallmouth utilize – scent that comes from the current you know that waves of current take scent to those fish and they investigate that scent just like a dog trails a duck you know i'm using ducks again if you if you if you duck hunt with a dog there's times you can see a labrador retriever smell a duck on the water be swimming across a lake get to a spot make a 90 degree turn and swim the scent of the duck up into the marsh so so i mean it's logical to think that the smallmouth four feet down current, eight feet down current from the rock pile, smell the wave of bait coming to them and track that scent line to that bait. I, I don't think that's that's that complicated at all for those fish. So, um, you know, does it, I, I think a lot of times too, you know, you see when you fish the Great Lakes and for smallmouth, a lot of times those applications are, you know, your bait's in the same spot for a while. When you flip docks for largemouth, even if you work your bait a couple times, your bait's only next to the pole on the dock for 1,001, 1,002. You reel in and flip to the next post. Mm. Sometimes when you're drop shotting for smallmouth, your bait might be down there 20 seconds on the same spot. So so maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe they're just the type of fish that you scent. I mean, salmon you scent like crazy. You know, so who knows? Mm. What would what you, would say, you say, say your, your, your biggest, biggest strength when it comes to smallmouth fishing is? Well, I've always felt like the biggest thing with, with smallmouth, and, and I'm sure that most of the people that, that listen to this and watch this are probably, you know, pretty diehard smallmouth people, probably a lot of them tournament fish. Um, what you find is the guys that are, guys and girls, that are really good at smallmouth fishing 
kind of look at it a little bit differently than traditional bass fishing. Traditional bass fishing, and, I, and I'll, I'll kind of go into that because that's where you get a lot of this, this talk that you see about, you know, smallmouths move a lot or smallmouths don't act like bass or whatever. Smallmouths don't necessarily, especially on the Great Lakes, they don't necessarily live like a largemouth. Like a largemouth will live up underneath a pontoon boat for the whole summer. And when you skip your jig up underneath the pontoon boat, you catch that largemouth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not how smallmouths work. Smallmouths usually travel in groups. And what they do is they basically go from one good feeding opportunity to the next, and they move in order to go through those feeding opportunities, and they rarely stay idle in one place. So it's not that you go to a place and that your smallmouth have left. Like you hear that all the time from tournament fishermen. I had all these smallmouth located, and dang smallmouth, every time I find them, they move on me. They do move because when you found them, they were moving. You just happened to cross their path. They don't necessarily sit in one spot day after day. But if you'll move around in the general area you found them in the first place, chances are you'll find them again. So you have to approach smallmouth that every single day is a unique day. Every waypoint you have in your GPS from, say, your practice period or your good day last week or whatever, that's a starting point and it's relative. You don't even really have to zoom in that close with your GPS most times. You just got to get around there because every day is going to be different. And you need to continue to move until you find the big groups of active fish. And you can't slow down. So one of the things that always helped me do really well in tournaments was my willingness to move and my belief that eventually I was going to run into them. And if you look at the guys that have made, you know, Hundreds of thousands of dollars fishing on the Great Lakes. Guys like Steve Clapper, uh, Scott Dobson, who lately is, you know, the best smallmouth fisherman in the country. Um, You know, myself, a lot of guys around Lake Erie, some guys that were really uh, hitters up on Thousand Islands. A lot of times we caught our fish at like one o'clock in the afternoon. And the story, you'd come into Wayne and you go, man, I didn't have anything at noon. You know, that, that was a famous thing that people would just get fed up with with uh, Steve Clapper. I talk about him all the time because he was such a legendary influence on me and still is. He'd come in and people would get tired of hearing that. I I didn't have a fish at noon. I had one little one at one o'clock, but we moved, we moved, we moved, we moved. And eventually we'd run into him just based on statistics. The fish moved. So you just got to keep moving. The ability then to move in big water, you know, to have a boat that was equipped to be able to move around to have a lot of places in one area to be able to jump around a bunch of places, eventually you'd run into them. And then you just had to keep them hooked and not lose them. So, so that was a big part of it is, is my success was never giving up and knowing that I had a full day. And if I kept moving, I'd find them. So let me ask you this, when you're moving, let's say you're, you're on an area where you thought was, it was going to go down and it's not happening. When you say you're moving, are you going to history, other areas that you've had marked in practice, or is it kind of a mixture of you're actually just going out and starting over, starting fresh, looking for new fish? Yeah, it it really depends on the place. Now, my experience, you know, I I did real well in a lot of tournaments up, up uh, up in New York. I, you know, have done well in Michigan, Ohio, you know, all across the, the big water region, let's say. But but that's one thing that I will say that's kind of the asterisk is Lake Erie, and especially the western basin of Lake Erie, those ha- those fish will move around, but they have a tendency to kind of group up in specific spots in specific areas. So you use a little history at times there. But even there, if you go to a big reef, 
And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, early on in your career, early on anybody that's bass fishing or tournament fishing, you get seven good spots in practice and you go one, nothing, two, nothing, three, nothing, four. And then you start to freak out. And then by spot number seven, you haven't caught them and you're all screwed up. What you should have done is you should have went to one or two. And if you didn't catch them, start looking because the fish were somewhere in that area. Okay. So, so it took me a little while, even on Erie. You know, those fish would pull off of the good spots on the reefs. They'd go out and suspend. They would do different things. <clears throat> you pick them up in places you didn't even think were that good. A, a real famous place for that, and the, what really fish is more like traditional smallmouth, is St. Clair. You know, St. Clair, the fish are just relative. You, you go and you run to your first area and you turn your motor off and you and you start looking. I mean, so you got to move around, move around. So, so, yeah, maybe you had an area that had a big school of fish in it and you're looking from spot to spot in that sense. But you need to spend a lot of time on the trolling motor. You need to keep moving around looking because um, history very rarely repeats itself. Now, there were key spots, especially in tournaments on Lake Erie, that you could say, you know, for instance, I had a shipwreck that I routinely caught a big fish off the anchor. Mm. You know, and it, was, it wasn't until we had side imaging that we knew it was the anchor. But, <clears throat> but it was an anchor from a shipwreck that laid off in the sand out away from the wreck. And if I could get over the top of that anchor, man, I could catch one almost every time. So, yeah, that's a great spot. But for the most part, you kind of moved around and you still you want to do that with smallmouth, which is why, like, in your bait selection and things, you try and fish fast. You try and fish real efficiently and real fast. You try and move around and stuff. Again, I talked about Scott Dobson. Scott Dobson will destroy his equipment, his boat, his rods, his life, his motors, whatever, to continue. and he will move and move and move and move in any condition until he runs into them. And when he does – he'll win. You know, he's super efficient and he's extremely a hard charging tournament fisherman. So that's what you have to do in Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair in those places. you got to keep moving regardless of the weather if you can. Or you, you get kind of smart and you say, okay, I found fish just using a place. You know, I found fish on the east side of Peely Island. I might want to look around. That's like a 10 mile area. Let's find some other areas that, you know, what happens if you only have three mm -hmm. or four? You know, you need a fish. It doesn't have to be a six-pounder. You need a three-pounder. Find a couple places, maybe up shallow, that have some two- and three-pounders. Don't get locked in on one spot. And, and that kind of goes with what I said. Assuming a lot of people that listen to this are tournament fishermen, you know, you've you got to keep yourself in the game, especially if it's a multi-day event. So you need to have areas where you can hopefully catch maybe some smaller fish and, and, and do it a little quicker. Um, but then the other thing is is, is – the reason that, you know, people like myself did so well so many times in a row is, is because of that confidence factor that you don't need long to catch them. So you stay in the game. You stay in the game. Smallmouth typically bite better in the, in the afternoon than they do in the morning. Um, so that helps. And the other thing that used to help me is I would almost inevitably, uh, if I was struggling, my co-angler in a big tournament would catch one. And, I, and, and they used to go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I know you're struggling. I wish you could catch it. And I'd be like, nope. I'm just glad you, and it would be like, I'd start to figure out, he'd get the fish bite or whatever, and it was just like, hold on, because we're going to get them all right now, right here. It was thrilling. The Great Lakes tournament fishing at that generation and that time was really thrilling, because it was still, it was the last frontier. It was the last unknown. I mean, we, we, we had places, I fished hundreds and hundreds of days for decades, and I found places almost every day. You know, I would find something new all the time. And that was so thrilling just to go out there and, and fish and drive and drive and drive in the summertime and it'd be calm and hot and the bugs are bad and, 
you know, you'd be driving all day and, and then you'd just go over something. You'd be like, what the heck was that? Mm-hmm. And you'd turn around and it would be one little pile of rocks out in the middle of nowhere. And it was just like, oh boy. And then three years later, there they were. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Just great. Just great. You bring it back loud. I'm going to start crying. It's it's very rewarding when you put that time in. You find that yeah. little secret deal or that special spot, and you have it all to yourself oftentimes for a while. Doing that and putting the time in really, when you find those areas, that's what really makes it special and worthwhile, I feel. Yeah. what is? I, I want to ask you this. What is your biggest, if you know, your personal best smallmouth that you've ever caught? You know, it's been a, you had, when we talked about this interview earlier, I know that you, you were going to mention that or ask that. And I started thinking at one time I could have told you like the top 10 right off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but it's been a while, but I caught a, I caught a, uh, I caught, I think four fish over seven pounds on Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair. And my a seven, four was my biggest. Oh. Um, but I remember I had caught like a seven, four, a seven, two, a seven, one, a seven, one or something. And they were all four on different baits. <clears throat> one was on a tube, one was on a jig, one was on a jerk bait, something like that. Uh, and a couple were St. Clair and a couple were Erie. And then there was a whole list. Oh, and I did catch a seven pounder at Chautauqua Lake in New York. Oh, wow. Uh, but there was a whole list of, uh, you know, six and a half to seven pounders. But <clears throat> even that's kind of relative because um, there weren't seven pounders, you know, when I first started fishing. Uh, but but there are more now. But the lakes kind of cycle. You know, like right now, from the guys I know that still fish Lake Erie, you know, daily, they said the lake this year had a lot of five-pounders, but it didn't have hardly any six-pounders. They never caught any six-pounders this year. Next year, you might catch four, you know. So anytime you're catching a true six-pounder on a scale or bigger, a smallmouth in the north, that's a trophy. A seven-pounder is a lifetime achievement. But, yep. but uh, yeah, it, it, at any time it could happen, but it seems to always happen in the fall. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I love to catch fish. I want more money on a drop shot than any other bait, than all baits combined. But give me a jerk bait or a spinner bait or something like that or something heavy-handed. I mean, it's just there's nothing like a big smallmouth hitting a jerk bait. So, so to go out and do that, you know, that's 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 my bread and butter time. But I see the I see you know the the treat of fishing all all seasons for smallmouth. Top water fishing in the early summer. Or in the summer, in the morning. Oh man, like some natural lakes in New York and stuff. Top water fishing in the summertime. Oh man, that's fun. Sure, that's really awesome. It is. It sounds like you miss it a little bit. So, what what are your future plans? Are do you get to get back up to the Great Lakes uh, often, or well, I have as much as you'd like. Yeah, no, I, I haven't got to do anything this year. Like a lot of people, you know, with COVID and everything, it, it mm-hmm. shut everything down. And my travel plans. Um, I still try and make sure I go to duck hunt, you know, cause duck hunting was a, was a huge passion of mine around Lake St. Clair. I hope to go and, and do some more, some more fishing to fish with some friends more than anything, you know, just to be in the boat with some guys that I spent so long and so many hours with in the boat, and tell stories like these and, and uh, remember those times, but it's, it's hard. You know, my dad's got a place on Erie. I could probably go anytime I want. Um, it's just, it's just hard to get away from Florida, you know, and, and, but, but I think once the world kind of gets back to, get to normal, you know, I think a lot of people are going to, are going to go into the, the future here and, and uh, realize they need to spend more time in the boat with, with people like their dad or their former tournament partner or their kid or their uncle or so, so I'm hoping to prioritize that and, and do more of that. I have no desire to go to Lake St. Clair on a weekend you know, and fish out there with all, all the people running around. Right. Um, I have no desire to go to Lake Erie when it's when it's rough. 
But if I can if I can line it up right where it's decent, I'll. All right. I'd love, I'd love you've it. you've had enough of those big waves in your life. You you uh <laughs> you're done with it, right? Yeah, and you know that was that was part of the game. You know, and there were times my wife used to I. I'd be going to get out of bed to fish a tournament in the morning, and I'd say, man, it's going to be really bad and really rough. And, and I'd be down in the dumps and complaining, and she'd say, that's when you do your best. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. you take a lot of the competition out of it when that happens. So that's when I did my best. So you just had to put on the rain suit and pull up your pants. Get that's out. right. That's right. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you coming on. You're a true legend when it comes to smallmouth fishing. I know our listeners and viewers have learned a lot today. How can we follow you on social media and keep up with what you're doing? Well, you know, my business has evolved somewhat now that uh, I live in Florida. My company is Millennium Promotions, and it's been Millennium Promotions since 2000. Uh, and that's what everything that I do kind of goes under. So there's there's the Millennium Promotions Facebook page is probably the best way to find me. You know, we do a lot of content now. We, we do a lot of pro staff work, and I help out with a bunch of brands on helping their pro staff and helping helping keep them uh, full of photos and videos and different things. Uh, the Z-Man team is one of, the, one of the, the big groups that we work with, so, so a lot of that stuff there. And, and St. Croix Fishing Rods is another one. And, and, uh, but I'm still doing – you know, I'm still on the water, and I'm still – working with Aquaview and with Plano and some of the brands I always worked with down here in Florida, but look up Millennium Promotions or Joe Baylog's Millennium Promotions and you'll find me. I write for Bass Fan every week. Every Thursday I do my column for Bass Fan. I still do that column. It's real popular. Look for me there. Uh, FLW, I write a little bit of stuff for them, so so look at their publications too, but but you can you can find me on social media, but I'm not one of the, the biggest uh, guys of that because I'm providing other stuff for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you can still see some cool stuff. There's a lot of a lot of good stuff on there. I, I try and shoot a lot of videos and get some underwater footage, which I really like. Oh, that's great. So if you guys check out the uh, description here in the YouTube video, or if you're listening, it'll be in the description uh, on this podcast, all the links to check out Joe and his companies. Uh, man, pleasure talking with you. It got me excited. I'm ready to go fishing today. You know? It got me excited too. That was probably the most I've talked about it in a long time. People say, don't you miss? I go, no, no, I don't miss it. I'm down here in Florida. But, you know, I, the tournaments, I mean, I, I don't want to go on any longer, but you just miss the, the feeling that the home run is around the corner. And, man, if you just keep swinging the bat, eventually you run into them, them big brown ones. And it's, it's really, really fun. As long as you can keep them on, that's the thing. you got to keep them on, keep them hooked. That's right. So addicting. So addicting. Yep. Well, listen, thank you so I'll, much for having me. Yes, thank you. I hope, hope our uh-huh. listeners and viewers enjoyed the show. And as always, until next time, we'll see you guys on the water. Thanks so much for listening today. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show and follow us on Instagram at Smallmouth Crush. Also, the YouTube channel, Smallmouth Crush. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a five-star rating and comment with a review below. And as always, until next time, we'll see you on the water.